everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have an amazing show for you. We've got the return of Sony Ibo. San Diego's Smart City Plans, Siri, maybe a little bit disappointing soon. Got a funding for an IoT PaaS company. Got an update on crack updates. And we've got some data from Mozilla about how consumers perceive the smart home. Plus, we're going to be reviewing the Echo Plus and all of Amazon's new interfaces tied to the smart home. We also have a comment from one of our listeners on the IoT podcast hotline, which is now, by the way, sponsored by Schlage. We have a message from SAP, and our guest this week is Joanna Sahovich, who is the CEO of the Chamberlain Group. And yes, we're talking about those plans to charge for IFT. So all this and more awaits you. But first, a message from our sponsor. The Internet of Things podcast is brought to you by ADT. Home isn't just a place, it's a feeling. The feeling that you're safe to enjoy the things that matter most. ADT lets you take that feeling with you wherever you go. Whether you're at your house, your business, or online, ADT helps keep you safe and secure with security systems, home automation, alarms, and surveillance, so you can feel at home wherever you are. Learn more at ADT.com. Okay, Kevin! Big show. Okay, big show. We're big gonna show. kick it off with my favorite, which <laughs> is the return of Sony's Ibo robot dog. And if you were not around in like the aughts, so two thousand five, two thousand four, mm. I think Sony introduced a cute little robot dog called Ibo. It was crazy expensive. I did not own one. And then in two thousand six, they they put it down. <laughs> they put it down. Yes, <laughs> they pulled the plug on Ibo, as it were. And people were sad because there were lots of people who loved their Ibos. In fact, there were actually people who held funerals for their Ibos. It was a big thing. So I was really excited, but then I kind of got less excited. (laughs) Oh, there's plenty to be less excited about with the new Ibo. Wow. I think it's cool that they brought it back. And and, I mean, I'm not saying everybody needs a robotic dog. I mean, Stacey, you have a dog. I have a dog. Sometimes you can hear them on this show in the background. But some people don't want to deal with an actual dog, and I get that. But you want a companion, so that's what Ibo is. Before I get to the butt, it's actually an interesting product itself. I mean, that this is a robotic dog that can move around 22 axes. It's got OLED panels for its eyes. It shows expressions. Sony makes a lot of computer vision products, so all those imaging sensors and, and products like the iPhone, Sony makes those. And It's really cool to see Sony saying, hey, you know what? Computer vision is now a real thing happening in the world, and we've got technology for this. Let's put it in this kind of toy and see what happens. So it has. Yeah. I mean, it is impressive from a technical standpoint, right? Is it though? Because here's where we get to it. It reminds me of Cosmo, which is a $150 connected toy for kids that is just adorable. And it has you know, image recognition, it rolls around and plays games. It's smaller than the dog and it doesn't move as it doesn't have the 22 axis of movement, but it costs 150 and Ibo costs $1,700. I think $1,750. So yeah. this is not a toy unless you're well, really well. 
But even if it was, let's say, $700, $1,000 less, I still would not be interested. This is why. On top of the purchase price, there is a monthly subscription that is going to cost you $26 a month. And you have to have that for like three years. And that's given the dog Wi-Fi and LTE connectivity, cloud backup, because, you know, in case you want to remember where he got his bone, you could or put his bone, you could look it up on the cloud. There's an app that goes along with it. I mean... A subscription for a dog? I don't know. I mean, sure, I buy food for my dog. I was going to say, that's less than I pay a month for my dog. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yes, but your dog doesn't have Wi-Fi. He can't be used as a Wi-Fi hotspot. I don't know. I mean, this is just, that's just a stretch to me. That's, That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And I will not be purchasing an IBO, but I think the original was too early for its time. And mm-hmm. I think this is now the right time for something like this. And I actually think there will be an audience for it, even with the $26 a month subscription fee. Although I'm kind of like, does my robotic puppy need LTE? I mean, I feel like we're <laughs> going to start seeing people ask these questions because right now cellular costs are still very high compared to, you know, Wi-Fi, which is basically free. And so I think maybe they could have chop that subscription fee and the bill of materials to make the dog, you know, a bit by saying, yeah, let's just make it Wi-Fi enabled. But then if you wanted to take your dog to Starbucks Mm -hmm. with you, I don't know. You'd have Wi-Fi at the Starbucks, but getting to and from the Starbucks, you'd have to have some, you know, LTE, I guess. But it's kind of interesting. I agree that, yes, there is an audience for this. I remember reading about older folks that lived alone, that basically this was their companion. And I'm not going to judge on that. That If that helps those people, then so be it. I think that's great. But this is not a mass market product, in my opinion, no. No, nothing that costs that much is really a mass market product. Well, let's talk about San Diego. Because I have been there twice this year, and I love it. It's a lovely place, and it is getting smarter. This is not exactly new. We've talked about San Diego in the past because it's had a pilot smart city program. Now that pilot is moving into production, and they are working with GE's Current to manage the LED street lamps in the city. They also are, they've put in 3,200 sensors, and they're going to stick 3,000 more sensors in the city, which is quite a lot of sensors. Yeah, I mean, this is a whole citywide effort. This is not just like sections of the city. They're spending $30 million to deploy this. And I think it's good. I am a little worried because they are working with GE's current. They're throwing everything into Predix, GE's Predix. So I'm kind of like, what happens to that data? I do feel like a lot of articles focusing on the smart city don't think about who has access to that data, how it's managed. And even inside a city, one of the challenges that cities have to deal with, and it's worth it for the citizens to know, is how the data from different sensors is shared across the city. So do police have access to, you know, surveillance cameras or do they have their own network? And those kind of things become really important when you think about kind of privacy implications and economic considerations. Right, right. Some of the services that they are rolling out actually touch upon that, in fact, because they're looking at installing ShotSpotter, which is detecting location of gunshots in real time. And at first I thought it was a good idea, but before the show, Stacey and I were talking about it, and she had mentioned to me that a lot of cities that use ShotSpotter are actually getting rid of it. And I, I did not realize that. And there are definitely privacy implications there of sensors that are listening for gunshots that can also record conversations and so on and so forth. So that's definitely something to, that needs to be considered. 
Yes. And it's probably not a lot of cities taking it out, but several cities are taking it out because they felt like they didn't. San Antonio is one, or they're talking about it. Oakland is another. They were concerned that, you know, it's a little redundant. People will report gunshots pretty much when they hear them. Two, sometimes there's false positives, and that was a problem. And then three, the privacy concerns. The shot spotter microphones keep recording after it detects shots. So police have used that in court to try to indict people for crimes. Now, if those people committed the crime, probably okay. But if not, they just happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. That could be, you know, not great. So there are definitely some civil liberties things to think about here. I hope the cities are. And speaking of a lack of privacy, let's talk about Apple, because it is so, so focused on user privacy. And I think that's probably going to be a problem for it going forward into the smart home. Basically... There's bad news for HomePod hopers and lovers. I guess you can't love it yet. It doesn't, it's not out, but (laughs) people wanting to buy the HomePod speaker when it comes out, hopefully in December, there's not great news. And Kevin? Yeah, I mean, so the HomePod comes out next month for $349 and Apple hasn't really said much about it. So we're all kind of guessing what will it be able to do? Will it behave like a Google Home product or an Amazon Echo product? Not out of the box is what I can tell you right now. And that's because the SDK for Apple has just provided to developers saying, hey, here you can start making apps for the HomePod, but only in a few categories, such as messaging, lists, and notes. So you'll be able to use HomePod to control Apple Music by voice, but I don't see any third-party music services coming anytime soon because... There's no way to do that. Apple hasn't provided a way to do that. So it seems like it's going to be a very limited experience. And the shame of it is, in my opinion, Siri is already a limited experience because it's not as smart at getting information, in my opinion, as some of the other assistants out there. And of course, it is within Apple's walled garden, which there's pros and cons to that. I have no issue there, but it's just an observation. You know, it's going to work with HomeKit, but what else? You know, I I just think this is going to be a very limited product when it first comes out. Well, and that was very much like HomeKit. And HomeKit is much better now. But even today, developers are still like, uh, where's my HomeKit support? They've been promising HomeKit products and haven't actually released them because of challenges working within the Apple ecosystem. And so I was really excited about HomePod, and I thought this would actually help push HomeKit to the mainstream. But this does not make me feel like that's going to happen. And it's frustrating as a reviewer or someone who talks about this stuff, because so many consumers are looking forward to HomeKit. I get so many questions about things working with HomeKit, and people have been waiting for literally years. And it feels like Apple has promised them something that works. And so far, it's pretty minimal. Everyone else feels miles ahead. Well, it does work. It's it does just work. That- you don't have the breadth of options that you have with other platforms from a support standpoint. And you had said that a lot of these product makers deal with challenges, not only challenges, but changes because Apple went from a hardware-based authentication or security bit to software-based. And I mean, that's tough to, these companies can't change on a dime when they're producing hardware. So that has caused delays of things. And maybe some people are just like, you know what, like you said, others feel miles ahead, such as Google's and Amazon's ecosystem. Maybe people are just throwing their hands up and saying, we'll get to HomeKit when we get to it. Yeah. And I would say from a developer side, that makes a lot of sense. From a consumer side, I kind of want to say, look, Amazon's really good. It's easy to work with. Do that. Or Google. If you're already on a bunch of Google services, Google Home has like 
over 60 partners right now in the smart home section. It is definitely a contender. So I don't know. I mean, yeah. if you want to keep waiting, good, go for it. But if right. you're kind of like, eh, you know, I've been waiting and I'm in Apple's ecosystem, I'm going to tell you, I would say it's not worth it. So I'm sad. I was really Well, hopeful. I think a lot of people will purchase this even with these potential limitations just because of the the sound quality is my guess. You know, they will feel that for 349 and Apple's technology, they are getting a better sound system than what's available. That's just what people may think, and that's fine. And it will work with HomeKit. It, it has Siri support built in. But if you want to control Spotify, for example, by voice, that's not happening. You have to do it through, you have to play Spotify through AirPlay 2 and control by voice on your phone, not through the speaker itself. So it just seems awkward to me. Awkward. Yeah. Okay, here's some fun news bits before we get to our big review of the Echo Plus and Amazon smart home stuff. Ayla, which is an IoT PaaS, Platform as a Service, for companies that are usually selling products to consumers. So think big name brands that are selling connected products to consumers. They're all hosted on Ayla. And they just raised $60 million in a Series D round. They don't need the capital, but they're doing it because they are going big in China. And they are creating a joint venture in China with Sunsea Communications, a telco telecommunications provider in China. And I think this is great. Ayla's been around since before the IoT was even a thing, really. They've been around since 2010, which, holy mackerel, that's a really long time ago. I'm trying to think of what how, what else was happening in 2010. It was In before, IoT years, that's a long time. That is a long time. It was before Nest, which was when everyone was like, oh my God, the Internet of Things. And I've got a crack update for everyone. We talked about this two weeks ago. Crack is a vulnerability in the Wi-Fi protocol itself, both client devices and your routers. So all of your phones, smart ovens, smart whatevers are all affected if they use Wi-Fi. And most companies have done a really good job. Either they are not vulnerable to the attacks because of the way they've structured their products, which is yay good. June, Nest, and I feel like Wink maybe is in that category. And then others have been updating like mad, crazy mad. Personally, my NVIDIA Shield got an update that addressed this as well as added other features. I bought an essential phone last week and got an update through them from Google with that addressed the crack issue. So I was surprised how quickly on some of my devices it actually showed up. Oh, yes, my Eero got updated. But what didn't get updated is actually pretty stunning to me. So two big names in the IoT space and in the router space. I reached out to Belkin the day of and they were like, yeah, we're working on it. We know it's out there. So now two weeks later, I felt like, hey, let's just check in. They still haven't released a patch for their devices. And then the other is TP-Link, which is another big router maker, but also makes the Casa and other connected devices. They have light bulbs. It's their Casa smart home effort. And they have not done an update either, although they did say, hey, yes, we're aware of it. So I don't know what to say. I look at this and this is why I've historically been kind of like, eh, I don't know about TP-Link's products. It worries me. I am also a little worried about the security on Wemo's products just because of the way that's built. I mean, it's a known fact that you can walk into someone's house if you're running a Wemo app. If you walk onto their Wi-Fi network, you can actually control their Wemo devices if you have access to their Wi-Fi network. Right, right. 
So yeah, that, and TP-Link sort of surprises me because Google partnered with them for the original Google OnHub router. There were two models of that, and TP-Link made one of them. Well, they're not mm-hmm. updating their other stuff. So I'm sorry. It's not that they're not. They just haven't yet. They're working on it. Right. So we have people working on it, and yay. So let's talk about Mozilla because they're still around. Mozilla. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Well, I love Mozilla because of what they're doing, their work on the open web, their work for privacy rights. I shouldn't, but, you know, that's like... I hear you. They're not as prominent as they once were for various reasons. I agree. I agree. And they created this IoT effort that felt like they were just like, ah, we're going to do something in IoT. So I don't know. But they did survey 190,000 people and discovered how people felt about privacy and smart devices. And Kevin, what jumped out at you from this? Well, I mean, obviously, a lot of people are concerned about privacy. I mean, this is global, by the way. This was not just 190,000 people in one region of the world. This is global. 45% are concerned about a loss of privacy. And I kind of feel to some degree that ship has sailed. Um, but I totally understand that. People still really don't understand IoT and all the different things that make it work. Uh, they said fewer than 30% of respondents said that they could explain IoT or botnets or blockchain or RFID, for example, and fewer than 40% could explain what a DDoS attack was. So yeah, people still have a lot of learning to do. And I blame kind of the industry and the people like us to a degree who explain it. I mean, we need to get the message out more to get people to understand what they're buying into if they're going to look towards this future. So yes, I agree that privacy big impact. The thing that actually shocked me was Brazil. So Brazilians, they have both in Brazil and India, they have the highest rate of connected appliance ownership at 15% versus 7% for the rest of the world. And Brazilian respondents were the most excited about how, quote unquote, easy a smart and connected life will be. 44% selected as the top benefit, the world being more connected. So the Brazilians are like super pumped. People in the US, France, the UK, and Canada, they were less excited. So- I don't know. I was like, go Brazil. Yeah, I wonder, and I don't have like, well, they actually do have the raw survey data out there, so I'll go check it afterwards. I wonder how the people in Brazil feel about their privacy and security as a result. Are they kind of like saying, I don't really care. Just get me connected, baby. I want to live this life. That would be very interesting to see. So I want to go back into the raw survey data and check that out. Yeah, because that is true. Man, I want to go to Brazil now. (laughs) So that data is fun. We'll put a link to it in the show notes because why not? Everyone likes data. Here is something I enabled and I thought was really cool. You guys may already know about it because it was reported earlier this month. But the Google Home, if you're part of the preview and you can go and become part of the the preview version of the software, you get something called Google Home Night Mode. And if you know what this is, you know, you were ahead of me because I enabled this the other day. And holy cow, it's awesome. Basically, what it does is when it's night, nighttime, You can set particular hours for the Google Home to lower its volume and dim its lights. Yay. Which, yes, because like my daughter runs around and this is less a Google Home thing, but she does turn up the volume on our Echoes all the time because she's 11 and likes her music loud. So, you know, sometimes late at night, I'm like, you know, turn off the lights and holy cow, it's like, okay. Yeah. Ah, 
I have a similar situation. The girls go to bed a lot earlier than I do. So I'll sit in my office, I'll watch TV, and I'll be talking to the Google Home, either to turn the TV off, shut the lights, dim the lights, whatever. And it is so loud because I was listening to music loud during the daytime. So the LED isn't really a problem because I'm the only one in the room. But boy, oh boy, every time I go to bed, I pretty much wake everybody up, the Google Home. So I'm going to get in that beta program. I don't know why I didn't yet, but I want this. I don't know why you didn't either. Because yeah, it's pretty functional. And I would say mm-hmm. to Madam A, go get that because it's pretty yes. cool. Okay, speaking of Madame A, that was like the kludiest segue, segue, I feel, but okay. I got the Echo Plus, and I got it yesterday and started playing with it. So there are two parts to this. One is the Echo Plus as hardware itself, and then two, the stuff that Amazon has now recently done to make its smart home interface. Is it better or just different? We're going to talk about that. I'll go with different right now, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, there's a reason. So the hardware for the Echo Plus is excellent. It's a substantial piece of equipment. It sounds good. It sounds a little bit better than the Echo. It's probably not as good as a Sonos one, but I'm okay with that. And it has a Zigbee radio in it. So initially I set it up in my own home, but since I have a hub for most of my Zigbee bulbs, because they're Philips Hue, I was like, I don't know what is happening here. So I took it off. I reset it up on my guest network with the bulb that actually came with it, which was a Philips Hue bulb. It was a white bulb. And I set that up. And let me tell you, super easy. So the Echo Plus is not something you need unless you don't have any other hubs that deal with Zigbee in your home. So, And if I could just add, I think that is why they did not include a Z-Wave radio, because this is targeted for people who do not already have smart home hubs. Right. So that's my takeaway here. You probably don't need this. Most of the people who listen to the show may not need this. <laughs> right. right. Which is fine. But if you want to give you know, your parents or someone a lovely gift of a smart home, this actually might be a good product. So I tested it with a Philips Hue bulb. I also had an Osram bulb and it worked. And I don't know what else to tell you about this other than, yeah, don't buy it. Yeah, you already I- have a hub. <laughs> Yeah, and you could save some money that way and just get the less expensive Echoes if that's what you want to do. But as you also said, they changed the software. And I had seen some of this last week. In fact, it was in your newsletter where there was a a support page that showed how you could add Echo devices to your smart home groups. And by doing so, instead of having to say the name of the lights in the room with the Echo, you can then just say lights on or lights off. And based on proximity or the group setting, essentially, the Echo would know which lights you're talking about without naming them, and it would take that action, which is a beautiful thing. I should point out, it only works with Echo devices. So if you have a smart home speaker that has the voice services, then it will not work. And it only works with bulbs, as we found out with a Wemo switch in my group. And Stacey, I think you too have a Wemo and something else. I have a Wemo Insight switch. I have a Lutron fan, and I have a, a Wemo Insight, a Wemo dimmer. Right. So those Wemos make dumb bulbs smart, and this setting will not work with those. It will only work with smart bulbs. Which makes sense, because they're emphasizing the Zigbee use case, is my guess. But it is a little sad. Because I have a hodgepodge of devices and different (laughs) reasons for these devices, like, so I have my Wemo Insight switch, one, to test, like, how much things how much electricity things use. But it's also nice because I can set sunrise, sunset as my schedules on the Wemo Insight switch. And I like that as a automatic thing. So I don't think I can do sunrise scheduling yet for the Amazon. Actually, you can't do scheduling because it's not really a home automation platform. So what we're probably seeing is Amazon moving into a home automation platform. 
slowly and surely. And I will say that the new interface on the app, so if I go into devices, I see all of my 50 some odd devices, you know, in two columns, it looks very much like a smart things does with its devices, even actually wink doesn't look like that from the device perspective, because you go into the individual devices, but smart things has this feature and I actually liked it. So, but it's probably more complicated for people now. (laughs) Uh, hard to say. I mean, for people who, again, are first-time buyers of a hub and they buy this, they won't have anything to compare it to. So you and I may feel it's a little more complicated than it used to be, but they'll never know. Yes, maybe. <laughs> like, yes, maybe. I don't know. You can also add scenes. So remember how we were talking about what the software developers were going to do with, you know, Philips Hue. If you don't have the hub, do you need the app with this? The answer is you do need the skill. So you will need to log in on the app if you want to control lots of stuff. I should have said that earlier. And I couldn't get any of the scenes that it pulled in from Philips to work. So I'm still trying to figure out what I did wrong there since I've I've had it for like 12 hours and some of those hours were Halloween and sleeping. But yeah, I don't have the new hub, but my Wink shortcuts are showing up in scenes and they're still working. Now, my Wink shortcuts have always shown up in scenes. Right, okay. Or my Wink shortcuts have always been in the Echo as they were in the device list. So now they're <laughs> bifurcated out. I now have a lot more. So I have things like Arctic Aurora. I don't even know what that is. I have color looping. I have all of these, but I don't really have them because they don't work. Going to work on I, that support. Yeah, I wonder if they would with the Hue bridge in use, because it sounds like that's where they're coming from. No, this was me testing it on not the Plus. This was me testing it on the other Echoes, not the Plus Echo. Gotcha. Oh, it's so confusing. I'm going to buy a shed. <laughs> <laughs> and in the shed, it will have its own separate Wi-Fi network. So also look for it because soon I'm going to be rationalizing my Amazon Echoes because I have way too many. Maybe we'll do a giveaway of the Plus for someone who needs a smart. Ooh. Ooh, happy holidays to our users. Stay tuned for that next episode. And now it's time to move on to comments and questions from our listeners. This is from the Internet of Things podcast, Listener Hotline, which now has a new sponsor, Schlage. Actually, it has a sponsor. That's exciting. So thank you, Schlage. The Internet of Things podcast, Listener Hotline, is brought to you now by Schlage, maker of electronic locks. With Schlage, you can have brand new electronic locks installed in minutes with just a screwdriver or your own two hands. They're easy to set up and use. To see what's possible, visit schlage.com to learn more. And now, a comment about the Amazon key. A very smart one, might I add, from Brian. Hi, Stacey. This is Brian in Denver. I have a comment about Amazon's new Amazon Key delivery service. I believe that Amazon Cloud Cam is actually there to protect Amazon from fraud, even more than it is to give the homeowner peace of mind. The Cloud Cam is actually a required feature of Amazon Key, and the terms of service state that it must be facing the door used for delivery. Amazon's Key Happiness Guarantee also states that Amazon may require photos or video to substantiate claims of damage during delivery. All this is to say, Amazon wants to make sure someone can't blame the Amazon Key delivery person for pre-existing damage, which probably explains why Amazon is being so generous in the pricing of the key bundle, throwing in a smart lock, camera, and free installation for the cost of a normal smart lock. Anyway, that's my two bits. Thanks for the show. Alrighty. 
That is a super astute observation, Brian. Obviously, the Amazon Cloud Cam and the key delivery service and lock helps consumers because you know if you're ordering from Amazon Prime and it's getting delivered in your house where you want it and delivery people are not running amok in your house and, you know, watching TV while you're gone or whatnot. But yes, shame on me for not looking at like the terms of service and all that kind of requires the cloud cam because this does protect Amazon as well. You know, you're not going to be able to say something was not delivered. You're not going to be able to say the delivery person threw it on the front porch and now it's damaged, you know, send me another one or any of that. So it really does make sense for both the consumer and for Amazon to require that cloud cam for the key delivery service. Agreed. So glad we have such smart, smart listeners. And before we go, I should offer you guys the hotline in case you want to call, ask us a question, or make a comment. That number is 512-623-7424. You can also find it on the website. And now we're going to take a momentary break for a message from our sponsor, but stay tuned for Joanna Sahovich, who is the CEO of Chamberlain Group. We discuss the subscription plans what's behind it, what you can expect next from Chamberlain, and some insights about how to build a connected business and what that's going to mean for any other consumer products companies out there. Hey, everyone, we are breaking into the Internet of Things podcast with a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is SAP, and I have Gil Perez, who is SVP of IoT and Digital Supply Chain. We are talking about SAP Leonardo Live, which is a big event that you are having November 2nd through 3rd in Chicago. Can you tell me what this is? Leonardo Live is SAP brand name for our ongoing innovation. And this is a global event which we're going to have people coming from all over the world to see how SAP's technologies come together to really create that system of innovation, whether it's going to be blockchain, machine learning, of course, IoT and other things coming together with SAP customers, SAP partners, and of course, SAP themselves showcasing all these amazing technologies. Okay, so I could see some real-world things, which is really exciting. What are you most excited about? Personally, I'm working on two really interesting areas. One of them is connected vehicles. And in that space, we're really seeing the continued connectivity of all the cars in the telcos, where they are offering what we call the OBD dongles. So making any existing cars that is on the road today connected with an OBD dongle. So we're going to have a great company called Mojio presenting how they're working with SAP and really offering today's SyncUp, which is the T-Mobile offering, which is powered by SAP connected vehicles. So that's going to be a really exciting session. Another area is, of course, blockchain. Blockchain is another amazing a new technology that is evolving quite quickly. Everybody knows them in the context of Bitcoin, but in the enterprise, it's going to be used in other ways, specifically in the context of track and trace and accountability and ensuring that drugs which are being distributed are authentic. We've been working with Merck as an example and Amerisource. And we're showcasing those technologies, innovations, really with SAP technology being used in the today out there in the field and being piloted. There's going to be a lot of interesting stories with multiple customers. This sounds great. So there are a lot of shows right now focused on IoT. What makes Leonardo Live different? Leonardo Live is going to be full with customers that actually have hands-on experience with all these technologies. So I really urge 
anybody who is interested in these kind of technologies from blockchain, machine learning, IoT, to come and visit us, Leonardo Live, because you're going to be able to interact with those customers, partners in real time. All right. This is coming up on November 2nd through 3rd in Chicago. So where can we find out more about Leonardo Live? You can find all the information on www.sap.com slash LeonardoLiveNA. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham. And today's guest is Joanna Sahovich, who is the CEO of the Chamberlain Group. Hi, Joanna. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Stacey. Thank you for inviting me. I am really excited because you guys have been doing a connected product, or products rather, for a while, and I'm eager to learn what you guys have learned, and then also talk to you about a recent decision that has proved controversial among some of your users. Let's just kick it off with controversy. No need to like warm it up. Let's talk about you guys in the MyQ garage door opener, which I own and actually give to people as a gift. It is that awesome. You guys recently decided to start charging your users for use of that with the IFT platform. And I'm curious why. Well, Stacy, we have had the MyQ application, which works with our Chamberlain or LiftMaster garage door openers for more than five years. And as a durable goods manufacturer, we initially looked at it as how does this increase our bill of material? What's the cost of the Wi-Fi chip and the related components? And what sort of a price increase do we need to put on our product in order to recover our cost? Over the last five years, we have realized that a, our MyQ app among its user base is extremely well received. If you take a look at the ratings, uh, there's some of the highest out there. But B, it comes with a huge responsibility. People expect 99.9% .9 uptime. Otherwise, they're locked in or locked out of their garage. They expect for there to be a level of security because for almost 80% of U.S. homeowners, this is the front door because their garage is attached to their home. So they don't want it to be able to be hacked or penetrated in any way that doesn't at least equal, if not exceed, their regular garage door opener. And then C, they'd like to have ongoing features and functionality, such as integration with partners or new features uh, that continue to be dreamed up once you have the capability of a connected garage door opener. And so we found that really there were two investments. One was making the product connectable to the internet in the first place. And the second one was the ongoing investment of creating uptime from creating security and continuing to upgrade it with features and functionalities that our users would like to see over time. And when did you realize that this product that you were pushing out into the market was eventually or was on its way to becoming more of a service, at least in terms of how you guys have to account for the costs? When I arrived about 20 months ago, I came with background in the connected home, connected building, connected factory space. And so I came with the benefit of understanding what the ongoing value created by the company looks like, as well as the ongoing costs and responsibility as a supplier of that service or that good. 
And, and what I found was a gem. We had created something that had a great amount of reception, but not a lot of understanding or thinking of how we were going to continue to evolve the value of this product and pay for it. So it probably was 20 months ago when I joined the company that we started having conversations. All of these partnerships that were requested by customers and partners, all of these things that we could do to the app, but we really couldn't afford because those things were competing with the core business which was product sales that brought revenue and profit. And we began to look at it a different way. And so from your standpoint, I thought this was interesting, is this idea that it's kind of cannibalizing your existing business to put development costs towards, you know, the ongoing security and the ongoing maintenance of this program, because normally those resources are used for selling the physical hardware and products to people. So have you guys shifted the way your organization works? Yes. So the biggest conflict that we found was in engineering resources and software development resources. And we did change our entire organization structure to better align with where we saw our growth opportunities in the future. So one area that we ended up creating was a line of business called the Emerging Businesses, LOB line of business, that would allow us to focus on some of these new and disruptive things that we wanted to explore and that we wanted to test and that we wanted to incubate and bring it to critical mass before we put it in the more mature business. And they have their own engineering resources that they don't have to compete against the more mature businesses that can guarantee growth and profit right at the outset. So it allows for some risk-taking, some experimentation. The other thing that we did is we separated our businesses more by end user than by brand and channel. So we now have a residential line of business, we have a commercial line of business, we have a perimeter access line of business, international line of business, a distribution and automotive, as well as the emerging line of business that I talked to you about before. And that does allow for focus on the end user applications that we're looking at right now that may be hardware or durable good base, but may just as well be software systems and services like we're discussing. Okay, so let's get to this IFT service, because there's been a couple things that have, I would say, rightly irritated some users. So the first was a few years ago, probably before your time, when Chamberlain promised HomeKit compatibility with the MyQ system, and the thought was they weren't going to charge for it. Turns out that HomeKit required an extra cert chip, so you had to make new physical hardware for it, and then Chamberlain charged for a bridge update, basically. This rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And now those same people or other users like them are really looking at the charging for the IFT integration as kind of a falling back on a promise that Chamberlain made to integrate with other services. So I'm curious how all that happened. So I'll refer back to the earlier discussion where when we started this journey, nobody else had really done much of this before. And we were looking at it as to how much can this chip cost? And how much does it cost to just enable this service in the first place? And we thought that we could recoup our costs in the initial sale price of the product. As we've been on this journey for almost six years now, we've discovered, again, that to deliver on the uptime promises, the security promises, the partnership integration promises, the extra value-added services that consumers are asking for, there's an ongoing cost to this service. But as we continue to add features, functionality, partnerships, integrations, 
then if we feel that there are customer segments that are willing to pay for it and other customer segments for whom it's completely irrelevant, then we put that into the premium tier where we charge $1 a month or $10 a year. You'll see more and more going into the premium tier and you'll see more and more going into the base free service. But ultimately, this is something that we wouldn't be able to afford to continue investing in the business if we made everything free. And how did you guys come about with that pricing? We had several different, we came at it from several different directions when we analyzed the pricing model. First off, we wanted to understand, you know, what are our costs? We don't price based on costs, but you do have to have an awareness of what sort of costs you're incurring. Because if the value does not exceed the cost, then maybe it's not something you should be investing in. And then we did some very detailed analyses, customer analyses, around what value are we delivering and what is the willingness to pay for that value. And we came back with a variety of different options that reached an equilibrium of approximately a dollar a month or we thought $10 a year might incent people to sign up for a year at a time. What percent of your user base do you think will sign up for something like this? Well, we've had a large percentage of our user base sign up for the IFT and the HomeKit integration, particularly during the 30-day period where there's a free trial. And we're continuing to monitor the participation rate as the free trials expire. It's been, in some cases, triple-digit growth day by day by day, small numbers, admittedly. But then the other thing is that, as I mentioned, we do intend to keep adding features, functionality, services, and applications to that premium tier. And so as people value and enjoy IFT and or HomeKit integration, they find that they get other features and functionality that continue to validate that investment, or it brings in new segments and new users who initially weren't willing to pay for the IFT and HomeKit integration, but they would for future applications that we bring to market. So what are some of those future applications you're looking at? Well, I think my product manager would strangle me if I were to pre-announce things. But one thing that I can tell you about that would be available by the time we air this podcast is many people don't realize that we have an automotive component to our business. Uh, we license our technology for the HomeLink applications as the ability to use an integrated button in your car to open and close your garage door rather than a removable transmitter. At the SEMA show, which is one of our industry shows, we announced our partnership with Alpine. So people who own select Alpine navigation or entertainment system would then be able to use MyQ on Alpine Connect to open their garage door as they're approaching rather than have a physical transmitter like we're used to. So it can further allow for integration. They can activate their home mode that would turn on lights so their house is lit. It can interact with their Nest Learning thermostat so that the house is at a comfortable temperature all from the touchscreen in the car. And so that's an example of more and more applications become available once we can have the devices connected to the internet and that we can create more value for our users. This idea of charging for a subscription, I believe that we're going to have to pay for subscriptions for a lot of our connected goods. It's just part of the business model that kind of you just talked about. But I do worry about kind of death by a thousand subscriptions. So I can see paying Chamberlain 10 bucks a month and maybe I'm paying Ring 30 bucks a year. And then I'm paying, I don't know, a security thing, X number of dollars a year, plus maybe some sure. cloud storage, et cetera, et cetera. So when I start looking at that, I wonder how you view your subscription 
as part of an entire ecosystem of subscriptions that is going to come about? So I agree. There is a little bit of a consumer paradigm that stuff is free, but people are beginning to realize that stuff isn't really free. When you upgrade to the latest iOS, you find out that some of your free apps haven't been updated and and may never be updated. And it's hard to complain about that because they were free in the first place. People are beginning to learn that if you want a service without advertisements or commercials or things like that, that you have to pay for it. Uh, People are also beginning to learn the notion of a freemium model. You get the base version for free, maybe LinkedIn or Evernote or something like that. And then if you want the premium version, something that you may value, then you have to pay a subscription model. And so customers are beginning to realize that if you want premium service, be that no commercials or extra features or, or somebody updating it and making sure that it's upgraded and secure over time, you're going to have to pay some dollars. That being said, you know, the competition for recurring revenue dollars is fierce out there. Everybody wants a piece of the consumer's wallet. And the consumer only has so many dollars that they're willing to pay for a monthly subscription. Your home alarm service is competing against your cable bill and people have to decide what's more important to them. And so really, it's we're relying on our ability to create value that the end users want and are willing to pay for. And ultimately, there are some that will survive and there are some that won't survive. But right now, it's the Wild West. You know, everybody wants to have something connected They've realized how much it costs to maintain a connected device for their subscriber base over a long period of time, and they're trying to figure out how to get paid for it at the same time that these ecosystems are trying to consolidate, and some of the consolidators are looking for how do they assemble partnerships but keep their recurring monthly revenue to themselves. It's a very exciting time. I can't tell you where the equilibrium will balance out. But in order for us to control our own destiny, we have to continue to develop things that consumers will value and are willing to pay for. Sure. I'm just wondering if eventually there'll be kind of like a cable package for the smart home, maybe offered through your cable provider ISP, maybe offered through some third party or a security system where suddenly I'm just, I no longer know what I'm paying to you guys in particular. And I'm just, it's part of a package of cloud storage plus, you know, if integrations plus whatever else. That's absolutely possible. And there's so many different directions that that's taking. You can see the security providers taking a lead on that. You can see home automation partners taking a lead on that. You can see the cable and telephone line companies taking a lead on that. You can see the the Amazons of the world taking a lead on that and the, the home assistance. And we're not really sure where it's going to settle out. But the good thing is that every single one of those partners want garage control. Well, maybe you guys will get to be the ESPN of the smart home package. We'll see. Let's talk about new stuff. You guys have expanded from, you've obviously had lines of business outside of the consumer, but I know that probably roughly a year ago, I talked to Corey Cerise over there about you guys starting to create a service package for commercial customers that actually helps them understand their business better based on like how much time trucks are spending at loading docks and that sort of information. So I'm curious, one, how are you guys evaluating these new opportunities? It might be that new lines of business thing that you guys are working on. And where do you see you guys going next on that? So you're right. Our reorganization did create a commercial line of business. Now, we've always sold commercial door openers. It's part of our core competency from our residential line of business. And so they're heavier duty and they do a few different things. But really, 
take advantage of our engineering expertise and our patent portfolio to open commercial doors. Think stock doors, maybe, for a distribution warehouse. The issue is, is that the biggest competitor in the commercial line of businesses do nothing. Unlike residential homes, the commercial doors are often manually powered. You have a worker come in in the morning and they roll that thing up in the morning and maybe they might close it a little bit throughout the day, but in large part, they remain open for much of the day and then they close them at the end of the day. And for years, we'd been relying on a value proposition that talked about injury reduction and workman's comp claim avoidance as one of the reasons for why the owner-operators of distribution centers, say, should invest in a commercial door opener. But the reality is, is that a cost avoidance for whose cost it isn't even in your operating plan the next year is one of the first things to be cut. It really resembles insurance in a way. And when you are resource constrained, that's one of the line items that gets crossed off. And so by creating this line of business where the group could really focus in on the end customer and what are their problems and what are their opportunities and what can we solve for them, we gained a lot more insight around how their business works and how we can better contribute to that business through an automated and connected commercial door operator that can contribute to things like energy savings if the, say, if the space was climate controlled or safety compliant if, say, it's a pharmaceutical warehouse and they need to cooperate to a regulatory agency that security has been enforced, or efficiency. If you think about uh, many people have a certain number of dock doors for their distribution warehouses, and they think that they're all being utilized equally, and then there are capital requests to add on more. If we can provide the data that shows them the actual usage and the trends so that they can understand when the right time to invest in, then you know that gives a P&L owner real insights as to how they can operate their business more effectively that doesn't trade on fear and cost avoidance that really isn't even in their plan in the first place. Oh, I could do more with not being sold on fear. So yay. Uh, (laughs) Let's wrap it up with advice for other CEOs in your position, or rather in a similar position with products that are going to cost them money over the long term. What would you do differently if you were building MyQ today from the ground up? Well, as you reference, starting to charge for something that has been free for almost six years has not made me the most popular person on social media. It's been a small but vocal group of detractors. And if I had to do it over again, I would have, if I could rewind to six years ago, I wasn't in the company then, but if I could somehow travel back in time, I would have done more thinking about what value are we creating? What service are we offering? And what do we want to offer free But what do we need to charge for in order to help keep the investment going? If anybody thinks that they're going to start out free and once people love it, then you're going to start charging and people will be happy to pay, they'll probably end up in the same boat that I was in a month ago once we did start charging for certain integrations beyond our base services. Got it. You guys built your own cloud platform, correct? Yes, we absolutely did. Being a company that is rooted in security and making sure that we have an offering that controls the security of what for most people is their front door, their garage door. We wanted to make sure that we had full control over that. Okay. So that's still, from your perspective, a good decision. It's still a good decision. 
we can monitor and we can make sure that we understand what's happening 100% of the time. And for us, the other opportunities around commercial or perimeter or other applications just continues to make that a good decision as we explore branching out from our base residential business even further. Excellent. All right. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was nice talking with you. That's all for this week's Internet of Things podcast. Remember, if you want more IoT news, please sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.